All right, if you would, take your Bible and turn to the book of Colossians in the New Testament. If you have a phone and you have access to God's Word on your phone, feel free to pull that out. Colossians is in the New Testament, so toward the end of your Bible. You get past the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you go past Acts and you get into Paul's letters. And it's one of, it's right in the middle of Paul's letters is the book of Colossians. We're going to start in chapter 3, verse 18 here in just a, uh, a few minutes. We're not going to read the whole passage at the beginning. We'll end up reading it a little bit at a time as we go through. Kids, I know normally we would dismiss at this point to go to children's church, but I want you all to be in here. Uh, we're going to be very focused with the, with the sermon this morning and at the end of the sermon, you're going to have a chance to see something called the Lord's Supper happen. And I want you to be in here to see that and to be able to ask questions and to understand more about who Jesus is. And so, parents, if I know you're always worried. It's, it's never other kids that bother us. It's always our own kids. Like if other kids act up, I always think it's cute. If it's my own kids, it's a whole other story. But, uh, but don't worry about that. We're in this, we're in this together. Uh, we'll... Will be great. Let me just say before I get started that if you were watching Jeremy and, and his baptism and you thought to yourself, you know what, I've never been baptized. I'm not even sure I really understand completely why people do that. This is the perfect opportunity to ask someone. We have deacons, you have friends sitting around you, James, Corey. Do not let this opportunity pass without asking someone, hey, why are we baptized? And, and is that something I can do to publicly show people that I'm a follower of Jesus? And how's the Lord at work in my life? So I just want to encourage you to, to use that as, uh, as a step of faith in your own life, as, as saying, I'm going to follow after Christ. Emmaus Baptist Church in Oklahoma City, where my family is moving to be the pastor there, right now at this point in the service, they are praying for First Baptist Bay St. Louis, and they are praying for Jeremy and his family by name. They are excited about how the Lord is working, and there's a little boy who was baptized there this morning as a follower of Jesus. So it's an incredible reminder about how God is at work in all places at all times, and as he brings his people together. What I'd like for us to do is I'd like for us to pray, and then we're going to jump into study of God's word this morning as we continue in worship. Father, we thank you that as we gather together to pray, to sing songs, to encourage one another, to be parents and grandparents and friends, and God, as we come to a study of your word, that you would remind us of your goodness and your grace, God, that you would work through our lives, that we would come to hear from you and then respond in worship and faith and obedience. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been in need of a reality check? Now, you probably have given other people reality checks, like your spouse or your kids or your grandkids. You, we give out reality checks, but have you ever been in need of a reality check? When I was in high school, or really from the time, my earliest memories as a little kid up until yesterday in my life, I've loved sports. I mean, that's what my life is. Any free time I had as a little kid, it was all about playing sports. And, and I have two younger brothers, and where we grew up in Oklahoma, we grew up right across the street from the church building that we attended, and, and next to the church was a tennis court. Now we, in you know, organized sports, we played all the major sports, we didn't have organized team tennis, but that did not stop my brothers and I from playing a lot of tennis. 
that usually degenerated into one of us jumping the net and chasing the others with the tennis racket. So it was a very specialized form of brother tennis that, that we played. But the summer before my senior year in high school, I thought, you know what, I should probably compete in a tennis tournament. I'm, I'm pretty good at this. You're always good when your brothers are your only competition. You know, you always think you're, you're better than you are. And so I signed up for a tennis tournament that summer in our area. And they ended up in the first match putting me against not the best player in our state, but the best player in our region of, of the country. And so I got out there. I didn't, I mean, I'd watched tennis on TV. I knew the rules. I'd played a little bit. I had no preparation for what was coming when he hit that first serve. It, it was the most amazing thing. I think I clapped for him after he hit the, uh, after he hit the first serve. And so then I determined the only hope that I had the rest of the match to win a point, not a game, to win a point, was just to charge the net every single point. He got so frustrated at me by the time. I mean, he destroyed me six love, six love, but it was a reality check. I thought I was something, and then I got in the middle and realized uh, I wasn't anything at, at that point. Scripture works in an interesting way, especially as Paul writes his letters. He will establish this reality for us oftentimes at the beginning of his letters. And then the second half of his letters or toward the end, he'll give a sort of reality check. In other words, if you say this is true about your life and you see God working in your life, then these things will probably be a result. These things will be a byproduct and they become a check. They become an outflow of how the Lord is, is working in our lives. Two years ago, when I got started as the pastor here, we began by studying the book of Colossians. And we're going to end today by studying the book of Colossians. And when we began, we said together that we wanted to exist to proclaim and display Jesus. So that's sort of been a tagline. Quick side note. When the next pastor comes in, that's probably not going to be his tagline. He's probably going to say, who in the world came up with that? And he's going to get rid of it and come up with a new one. That's okay. That's a good thing. My encouragement to you is whoever the Lord leads here next, they're not going to be the same as me. They're not going to be the same as my family. They're going to bring strengths that we don't have. They're going to be different in personality. Love them for who they are. Let let that man be who God has called him to be. It's just a man-made phrase, proclaim and display Jesus. We're not saying that this is, this is scripture, but it's something that the Lord has used to help keep us focused about why, why we exist. The question is, though, How do you know if you're actually doing that? How do you know if you're actually proclaiming and displaying Jesus, if you're speaking about Jesus and showing him with your life? What Paul does is at the end of Colossians, he gives us five ways to check in on that. He gives us a reality check that comes in five parts. If you received a bulletin or a program as you came in this morning, if you turn that program over to the back, there's a list, uh, kind of an outline of five ways. If you want to take notes, you can write some notes around that. But these are five reality checks, five ways we can determine, are we going to be a people who show Jesus and speak about Jesus. We're going to begin in Colossians 3, starting in verse 18. So if you want to look in your Bibles or look up on the screen, we'll have the text of Scripture there. Verse 18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. 
Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, says verse 23, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Then chapter 4 begins with, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. What Paul is showing us here is if we are going to be about Christ, if we are going to speak about Jesus, if we're going to live that out in our lives, the way it happens is through our everyday relationships. We realize, we look at our own hearts and our own lives, and we realize that there is a form of Christianity that you can fake on Sundays, that you can fake in a gathered religious ritual, but you can't fake that at home, and you can't fake that at work. Who we are as followers of Jesus comes out most clearly, and this is scary when I think about my own life, but it comes out most clearly where we live, where we work, and where we play. Those everyday aspects of our lives is where what it means to speak about Jesus and live for him really comes out. You see this established early in scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 6, where Moses tells the people, you're going to talk about the Lord when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. You're going to, every aspect of your life, you're going to say, this is about who the Lord is and how that impacts my life. One of the things that God set deep in my heart as a young Christian back in high school and in college was that if our faith means anything, it should impact the way we live our lives every day. A faith that only shows up on Sunday or a faith that only shows up in religious situations is a faith that misses the whole point of what God wants to do in our lives and through our lives. What we see from Paul here is if you want to know what it means to proclaim and display Jesus, it comes back to how you treat your spouse, how you treat your kids, how you operate in wherever your home is, and how you operate at work. And if we begin to grasp this, then the goal of our faith the goal of what it means to proclaim and display Jesus isn't found in this room on Sunday. It's found in how we live throughout the week. And so I want you to hear that. I hope that's been clear in the ministry the Lord has given us here. But if we're going to be about something, let's live out our faith day after day through the power of the Holy Spirit. Number two. Uh, so we go down to verse two in chapter four. The second reality check says this. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. And then verse four says, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. So the second reality check is gospel prayer. If we are proclaiming and displaying Jesus, if we're living for him, it's gonna be characterized by a life of prayer. And this is difficult. And let me tell you why this is difficult in my own life. Because when I pray or when I'm spending time praying or when I want to spend time praying, here's what I think. I think I'm not doing anything during those times. I'm the type of person that wants to be doing. I want to accomplish something. I want to realize that what I did had a result. I produced something. Some of this is guide tendency. Some of this is just human nature. We want to be doers. And when we pray, 
we feel like it's passive or we feel like we're not really doing anything except what the reality check here is, is if you are following after Christ, the core of your life is going to be prayer to the Lord. It's going to be this conversation with a father who has designed us to be in conversation with him, to know his voice, to call out to him with these things that are going on. And, and notice a couple of words that are used in verse two. It's not just that we pray, but it's that we devote ourselves to prayer. This idea of devotion means that you give time to it, you give priority to it, you give effort to it. I like what someone said when they said that no one stumbles into a life of prayer. In in other words, nobody just accidentally wakes up one morning and says, you know what, I need to devote myself to prayer. I need to seek the Lord. I need to hear from him. I need to give myself to this. It, It doesn't happen accidentally. Everything in the world gets in the way of that. Our, our pride, our intellectual faith, our desire to accomplish things, all of these things get in the way. Men, if you want to take a quick note here, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says that one of the things that gets in the way of our prayer life is not honoring our wife. Some of the times the reason we're not great at prayer is because we're not great at loving our wives. We're not... We're not caring for her and honoring her. So that's another reality check on what it means to be a person of prayer. But, but notice at the, the end of verse two, what Paul says about prayer, devote yourselves to prayer. And then he gives two more words here. And in, in this translation, it says to be watchful and thankful. Okay. Now I'm kind of going back and forth in my mind about whether or not to actually have us raise our hands now or not. So we are going to actually raise our hands on this. Okay. You ready? How many of you have fallen asleep while praying? Fair enough. Yeah, we, we do. You know, Paul says, be watchful when you pray. Amanda and I, uh, when we pray at night before going to bed, and husbands and wife, let me encourage you, if, you, if you do nothing else as a result of this this morning, pray together. Pray with your spouse. It will shape your life and your relationship and your, your walk with the Lord. But we'll be praying and I'll pray and I'll think, wow, she got really quiet. Oh wow, she's asleep. But, but just, uh, just to turn that around, she's been praying many times and I've been asleep and she'll, we'll wake up the next morning and she'll say, you fell asleep while I was praying. No, no, no. I was just being very introspective and very, very reflective on, on I, didn't, I didn't fall asleep when we were praying. We do that. We, but when Paul says to be watchful, he's not just meaning to stay awake when you pray. Uh, there's a thousand dollar word that goes with this. It's the word eschatological. When he says to be watchful, eschatological means as God will bring everything to completion. In times, the way he's bringing everything to completion. When Paul says to be watchful, he means to know what time it is, to be prepared for the Lord's work, to be prepared for Christ's coming, to say, this is not time just to be given to any leisurely activity, this is time to pay attention, to give ourselves, to be devoted, to be watchful in prayer. But then it says to be thankful. And the word thankful, the reason Paul puts that there is it's a balance word for the word watchful. The word watchful, when we think about the way God will bring everything to completion and this idea of the end times, sometimes people, makes people nervous 
or they come up with these conspiracy theories, or they get very anxious about life and about the world. The word thankful is meant to point to the victory that we have in Jesus. So I'm watchful. I realize that this is serious business, that life is not play, that this is serious business I'm giving myself to. But at the same time, I'm thankful for who God is and what he's done through Christ. So, so I don't have to be anxious. I don't have to be worried. I'm not dominated by those things. I'm just giving myself to prayer. But what kind of prayer specifically? Verse three and four, he says, pray for us that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. And then in verse four, he says that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. What Paul is talking about here is what we sometimes call evangelism or sharing the good news about Jesus. And if you're anything like me, it's difficult Uh, some people have the gift of evangelism and they are so good in those conversations and so good in those opportunities to share about Christ. My mouth goes dry, my hands go watery. I just, it's, those are difficult times. And I don't mean to oversimplify things at this point, but if you're thinking about sharing the good news of Jesus with someone, the very foundation, the difference maker in that is prayer. Are you praying about that opportunity? And do you have someone else praying for you? If you're going out and you say, I have a coworker or a family member or someone that I need to talk with them about my faith, those are hard conversations to have, but do not go into those conversations without someone praying for you. Because Paul knows that there's a good chance you may get a negative reaction and there's a good chance that they won't understand clearly what you're trying to communicate because you're trying to communicate to them that God loves you and that he desires the very best for you, but that in our sins, we have turned away from him. And the only way to be right with him is through Jesus. I mean, that's a conversation killer in some respects. But what you're saying is that is the hope for life. That is the good news. And if we have people praying for us, their hearts will be receptive to that in a way that won't be otherwise. Okay, let's go into number three. So everyday relationships, gospel prayer. Then down in verse five, Paul says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. What he's talking about here is one of the ways you proclaim and display Jesus is through wise conduct, through the way that you live your life. Let me point out two words. We're not going to spend as much time on this third point, but let me point out two words for you. The first is the word outsiders. If you want to make a reference or a note in your Bible or or on your bulletin, a reference to go back and look at is Mark chapter 4 verse 11. This same idea, the same concept shows up in Mark chapter 4, verse 11. But what we have to remember about the situation is that the Christians in this city of Colossae would have been a very small group. I mean, we're gathered in here at probably about 250 in this service, about 50 in the 8 a.m. service. So we're gathered here this morning in pretty large numbers. More than likely, we're talking of a church of 25 to 50 max in these early gatherings that, that Paul is referring to. So you're talking about a small, a small group of believers, most likely, surrounded by those in the world, those who they went to work with, those who they were in relationships with, those who they would pass on the streets. They're the outsiders but they're not the outsiders in the sense that you never interact with them. They're the outsiders in the sense that they're not a part of the gathering of the church. And so if we're not careful, you know, we, we, we know these phrases that church turns into a holy huddle 
or, or things like that that we just get with the insiders and we never spend time with people outside of our group. Paul's not saying that. He's just saying that when you do interact with people who are not believers, who are not part of the church, do so wisely. And the word wisdom, and, and I, I think I just wrote down on your notes, there are two facets to biblical wisdom, two sides to the coin. One is it talks about practical wisdom. And the second is it talks about spiritual wisdom or spirit-guided wisdom. Don't think of those as two different types of wisdom. Think of them as two sides of the same coin. When scripture talks about wisdom, it means common sense. Be wise in the way you live your life. Live for what is good, not for what is evil. But there's also a form of biblical wisdom that is only guided by God's spirit. But here's a caution. Sometimes people will be a fool in the world and say, they'll say, you know what, I was being a fool for Christ. No, you were just being a fool in the way that you live. There's a difference between doing something guided by God's spirit and just acting foolish. And, and this gets to the heart of why I get so burned up by some of the street evangelism that happens during Mardi Gras in New Orleans. Because with that, there is something about that where they're speaking some truth, but they're doing it in a way that completely turns away those who need to hear that message of hope and that message of salvation. And so Paul says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Live your life in such a way that you make the most of every opportunity that you have. And then look at the way that he, he follows it. This is the fourth point on your note, and it comes from, ver- it comes from verse 6. He says, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. I think, I don't want to read too much into this, but I think that Paul is purposefully listing conduct before he lists speech. In other words, the way you live your life toward those who are not believers sets the stage for how you're able to speak to people about Jesus. If you live before them in a way that is consistent and valid and wise, then you're going to be in a position to speak to them about the hope that you have in Christ. But if you don't live in a way that honors Christ, it feels very strange for them to hear you talk about church and to hear me talk to them about the hope of Christ if my life is not lived in a way that that honors the Lord. And so Paul specifically mentions our conduct before he mentions our speech. Uh, My mom retired this last year after 30 plus years of teaching fifth grade. And in her fifth grade classroom, she always had a plaque that said, people, uh, let's see, I lost my my quote there. Uh, Oh yeah, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I should have come by that a little quicker. You can tell, you can tell my mom's influence as my fifth grade teacher really took, but uh, yeah. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That idea that people aren't going to be impressed by your knowledge about the Bible if they don't feel that you care for them and and you're you're not in a position to speak to them. Look at what Paul says in verse 6 about the way we speak. It says, let your conversation be always full of grace. When you see the word grace in the New Testament, it's the word gift or the idea of giving. So so our speech should be life-giving. Don't speak to people in a way that it sucks the life out of them. Speak to people in a way that it's life-giving, that you're giving into their lives. And then it gives an explanation. It says, seasoned with salt. 
Salt is purifying. Salt adds taste to it. But salt is not meant to be consumed by itself. You know, if you just pour salt on your plate and start to consume that, that's just rough. Uh, we, were at the, we were at the Blind Tiger last week eating, and our three-year-old picks up, a, picks up a package of mayonnaise. It's so gross to think about, but just starts to eat the mayonnaise plain. And we were like, no, no, no. Mayonnaise is meant to go on top of the food, not to be consumed by, by, if you eat mayonnaise by itself, God bless you, but it's meant to go on top of the food, not, not to be consumed by itself. Uh, Amanda and I have the same conversation about coffee. The creamer is meant to add a little bit to the coffee. Amanda drinks creamer with a little bit of coffee added into it. And so we have this ongoing conversation about how exactly the coffee and the creamer are, are meant, to, meant to relate. The salt is supposed to go on top of the food that you're consuming and, and to purify and to give it that, that taste. It's not meant to be everything. You say, well, why is that a big deal? Look at the way that Paul ends verse 6 here. He says, let your conversation be seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. So someone asks you about your faith, the answer that you give them is the food. The salt that's added to it is what makes it pure and tasteful and allows them to be able to receive that as the word of the Lord. We're not just called to offer people salt. We're called to offer them an answer that is gracious and seasoned with salt. All right, point number five, and we'll, we'll begin to wrap up with this. Starting in verse seven, let's read from verse seven down through the end of the chapter to see how Paul concludes things. He says, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus. Something good, if you don't mind marking in your Bible, something good to do in this section is just to underline every proper name that you see show up. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. In verse 14, our dear friend Luke, probably almost certainly the same Luke that has the book uh, Luke and then also wrote Acts. Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's do another quick show of hands question. How many of you are registered on a social media website? Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat. How many people are on social media? Okay, 
probably 80% plus, if, if not higher than that. Uh, social media, one of the things that, that it does with all the hundreds of bad things that it does, but one of the good things that it does is the way that it connects our lives together, the way we're able to know what's happening in people's lives. This is the reason that your children and grandchildren have run away from Facebook because their grandparents and their parents found Facebook and they connected with all of these friends from high school, and then all the teenagers realized, whoa, that's not the place for us to be, and they ran away from it. So if you're wondering why you never hear from your kids or grandkids on Facebook, that, that's the reason. But the way that this works is it connects our lives together. Paul, in the first century, didn't have Facebook, but he did know about social networking. This group-oriented culture of the first century where you wanted to be in relationship with people, you wanted to know what was going on. We call these gospel partnerships that were connected together for the purpose of spreading the gospel in all places. A couple of things on your notes, and we'll wrap up with these. Two things in particular I want to point out. One is that having knowledge about other people produces encouragement and, and it gives rise to challenge. In other words, when you find out about a long lost friend from high school, either you'll be really encouraged about what the Lord has been doing in that person's life, or you'll be heartbroken because of the direction their life has gone. And you see this in Paul's letters where he would learn about people and he would be extremely excited. And then he would learn about the Galatians and the Corinthians and he would be frustrated and heartbroken because of what he had found out. Knowledge about people has a way of producing those feelings in us. And here's the second thing. I think that one of the things we see from this is that these gospel partnerships remind us that God's church extends beyond our localized impact. In other words, we're gathered here this morning at 300 strong in this place, but there are believers gathered all over the world, millions upon millions of believers gathered together, reminding us that it matters what we do here but God's work extends far beyond this. We could stand up and tell stories of missionaries you know and pastors you know and brothers and sisters in the faith you know around the world. And it reminds us that we are connected together. And what I want you to know as we, my family begins to transition to Oklahoma City is our ministry will be in another location, another local gathering of believers, but we remain connected as partners in the gospel. That part remains true because the foundation of who we are as the body of Christ is we are in Christ. It's not in Bay St. Louis, it's the body of Christ, that he is our foundation. He is what draws us together, and so we will continue to be partners in the gospel. And the way that I want us to celebrate that unity and the way I want us to celebrate that hope is we are going to conclude our worship service today. If you would, stand with us and we are going to conclude our time here by singing a final song that stands as the foundation for who we are and what we believe.
We believe in the Spirit And He's given us new life We believe